Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about things that men could, but don't talk about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton, and I'm with my great friend again, Fraser Franks. Welcome to today's episode, and it is a very exciting one because it is our first ever episode with a guest. So I would like to welcome the TV broadcaster, Simon Thomas, with us. And Simon, I'm going to go through your career uh, in a little bit, but please, I know you've had some big broadcasting jobs, but presumably (laughs) this is quite overwhelming for you being our first ever guest. This is massive. I mean, forget Soccer Saturday, forget Premier League football, forget Blue Peter. This is the high bar of broadcasting. Yeah. So, but beneath the camera now, the, leg, the legs are trembling, gentlemen. But I'm sure, knowing you guys as I do, you'll ease me in and the trembles will go and the wisdom will come forth. <laughs> <laughs> to relax you a little bit, the, we did a pilot and uh, during the pilot, due to some technical challenges, Fraser was actually wearing Peppa Pig earphones uh, throughout a period. So, you know, <laughs> we are at episode five and we've come a long way. That's all I'd say. Right. I want to give you a bit of an intro, Simon, to embarrass you. Go on then. I, I also want to explain the link between the three of us because it's, it's a really interesting one. But Simon has had a broadcasting career which lasts, I think, nearly 25 years now, Simon, without trying to embarrass your age. (laughs) Um, Started at Blue Peter. Yeah. And has gone through various broadcasters, BBC, obviously Sky Sports in a huge way. And at the start of this season, took over from the infamous Jeff Stelling to be the new presenter of Soccer Saturday, which is some feather in your cap as a broadcaster. For full disclosure, I've also managed Simon in the past, and I do say this without any bias, genuinely. Simon's one of the best broadcasters that I've worked with and watched, and I know I know people within production who also feel the same way. So, Simon, I hope I haven't embarrassed you too much there. Right, so before we get underway with the episode and the subject matter in hand, I also think it's worth just explaining the link between Simon, myself and Fraser, which is a really interesting one. So Fraser, obviously on our first ever episode, I think it's our first ever episode, correct me if I'm wrong, Fraser, explained that part of his journey into sobriety was going on a long car journey, having my book in the passenger seat and and googling a podcast to listen a bit more about me because he didn't know who I was and he listened to a podcast and and that that there was so much that he resonated from that that um that pushed him into where he is today and and the person's podcast who that was was Simon's which is pretty <laughs> mad and then we've all kind of connected over social media and when Simon when was the first time you and Fraser actually met person to person well, we still haven't. What? I feel like I feel like I know Fraser already, but yeah, I, I became aware that that Fraser had heard that, and someone sent me a clip of, from Talk Sport, and I remember sending it to you, Luke. And Fraser had been a guest on Talk Sport, I think, with Simon Jordan and Jim White, and he was mentioning the podcast, and and Simon Jordan picked up on it as well. So I remember messaging you, Luke, and say, "Look, you know, Fraser's been speaking about how powerfully you spoke on my podcast." And then I started dropping Fraser messages and stuff. We have tried to meet up. Obviously, Fraser's had a a, a reasonably significant operation in the Nothing last much. few days. No, Nothing no, made, no. just a massive scar down his middle. <laughs> um, but no, still yet to meet, which is which is a shame. But listen, we, we will, we will at some point. But I, I feel like, in the same way that I know you, Luke, I, I feel like I know Fraser, but not person to person. I've got to correct you for one minute because we have met for about 10 seconds. So <gasps> last season, oh, so- out of the blue. Oh, yes, let me, let me, you came up to me. There we go. Out of the blue. So I, I, I was at Chelsea's Academy as a kid. And then I actually got originally diagnosed with my heart condition at Brentford. And uh, Chelsea were playing Brentford in a game that was raising awareness for heart conditions. So out of the blue, they just contacted me and said, can you do a little bit on the pitch at half time?" And I was like, yeah, definitely. And I'm pretty sure it was like the one game of the season there that was on Amazon Prime where Simon was presenting. Yeah, that's right. 
And I walked out onto the pitch at half time and he walked out to the pitch at half time and I was just like, No way. Like we just we've been messaging each other and then we I just caught him like as I think just as before you're about to go on camera. And my brother had his phone out and sort of we had a we had a nice hug and stuff, but we we were due to meet up after that, but obviously it's it's been um a difficult time, but I grabbed you for about five seconds, Simon, and I'll I'll never forget it. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry I did, but now now you say it, yeah, I can remember. It's one of those moments when you're, you're broadcasting, your your head's in a million different places. I just remember going, I'd love to chat to you, but I'll lose my job if I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just be grateful that we can save it for another day. That's fine. I, I want to explain today's subject matter or theme of the the the, the podcast. We're going to talk about loss personal loss really interestingly after the first episode we 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 said uh, as we do on every episode please let us know what you want us to talk about this podcast is essentially about having the conversations that men find really difficult so we'll have them and you can listen in but but tell us what you want us to talk about and the very first message we got was someone asking us to talk about loss and it was a real bit of a curveball because i you know there were so many other kind of things that seem to to pop up but it it is it, as soon as i read it i was like that is so, such a, a relevant and powerful one and that's what we're going to go through today i i just want to explain simon's history uh, with loss and and my own which some of you might be aware of for both of us or neither of us but simon's first wife gemma died in 2017 only 3 days after being diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia they have a son called Ethan, and I was in Simon's life during that period of time, and I'm well aware of, of everything that he that he had to go through. For myself, back in 2004, I lost my girlfriend in a car crash when I was 28 years old, and I'd, I'd been away on a cricket match, and I came back and discovered that she had died in a car crash and, and, and dealt with that situation. And I find it really important that we're here today because, Simon, I don't know if you remember this. I I was involved with brokering um, the deal for Simon to release a book about his experiences. And when we went round various book publishers to talk about it, Simon is very high profile. The book was going to be very powerful. But some of the feedback we got back from publishers was people don't like reading about loss they don't like talking about loss and I never forget that because it struck me how how poor we are in society of talking about it and maybe as men even worse do you remember that Simon? I do yeah I remember it vividly and I remember asking myself the question because as you'll know Luke in the weeks and months afterwards I think you have in your head that because you you're known by people, you have a fairly decent social media following, that's going to equal lots of sales. But I remember going on the book tour that I had to do with Waterstones that you'd sorted out with the publishers. And a couple of them were quite well attended, but I remember going to Manchester and there being like six people there, spent three hours in the car and there's literally six people there, did the autographs and then just stood around like a bad smell for the next hour, fulfilling my bit of the bargain, but no one else came in. And I think over the next few weeks, I was I got quite down about it. But then I asked myself this question. Well, before this happened to you, how many books on grief had you read? And the answer was none. It was none because mm. we know it's going to happen. We know we're mortal. We know that almost certainly we're going to lose loved ones in our lives. Uh, if it's the natural order of things that we parents, I lost my dad three years ago and lots of my friends are now going through similar things in terms of beginning to lose parents. So we know it's going to happen, but it's one of those things that if we possibly can, particularly in our culture, we will put off for another day until we are presented with the true reality of loss, whether it's our own mortality, maybe we've got a serious illness and we find out we've got weeks, months, whatever left to live. That's the point at which you have to, because of the chain of events, confront it. But until then, people by and large don't want to talk about it. So when I look back on the book now, Luke, at the time I was thinking, oh, it's going to fly off the bookshelves. Well, no, of course it's not, because we live in a culture where until it happens, you know, nearly everybody who's read my book were either friends 
or people who've been through it or are about to face it. Most of the messages I ever had from the book was how helpful it had been for them in dealing with loss or preparing for the loss of a loved one. Very, very rarely was it messages from people who just decided just on a Monday to go into Waterstones and pick up a book on grief. We'll avoid it for as long as possible. And that that was really borne out in what happened with the book. Yes, I remember it clearly. I, I, I wanted to start start off with this this question. And obviously my questions as I was thinking them through and then ran them by uh, Fraser, uh, are steered because of my own experience, you mm. know, and I, there, there's, a, there's that kind of relation to them. But I wanted to ask you, emotionally, mm. what was the single hardest thing you felt or had to deal with in the immediate aftermath of Gemma's death? Fear. That was the single biggest thing. And actually... The only grief book I, I read a little bit of was one by C.S. Lewis, because I've always loved C.S. Lewis, loved his books growing up, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. But a lot of people don't know he was a, an amazing mind based in Oxford, a professor for, for most of his career. Wrote some incredible books, but also because I'm a, I'm a Christian, a man of faith, he was an incredible theologian. And if anyone's seen the film Shadowlands, it tells the story of how C.S. Lewis unexpectedly fell in love very late in his life with this American poet called Joy. And he wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, which covered both being surprised by meeting this woman, but the joy it brought into his life. But then he loses her to cancer quite quickly. And the whole tale of Shadowlands is the journey through meeting someone unexpectedly, unexpectedly falling in love and then unexpectedly losing joy to cancer. And so he wrote a very short book on grief called A Grief Observed. And I remember, I think I had three copies sent to me in the immediate aftermath of of Gemma dying in 2017. I remember picking up the first one I was sent and I just read the first page and I never read beyond that because his first sentence totally encapsulated the main emotion that I was feeling, which was fear. And his opening sentence in that book is, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. And that was the overriding emotion. And you know that, Luke, because you were kind enough. We actually weren't professionally together anymore at this point. We kind of parted company on very good terms, but just we were heading in different directions. And then I was just overwhelmed by, A, the number of messages coming in, media organisations trying to get a word out of me because they'd found out what had happened. And you just brilliantly stepped into the breach and said, let me look after this, which I will be forever grateful you did that. But it is that fear, the fear of what comes next, the fear of how life works when someone who's intrinsically part of your life is suddenly no longer there? How do I deal with the grief of an eight-year-old boy? How do I manage him through that? What happens to my career? What happens to everything? And that is the abiding emotion. It's, 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 it's pure and unadulterated fear. That, that would be my overriding emotion from this first, first few weeks. And that didn't leave for a long, long time. But it's, it's, it's just a fear of how does life work now? How do I get through this? Can I get through this? Can I be the dad that Ethan needs? Or will this all prove too overwhelming and I just end up in a really dark place? It's, it's fear for me was the biggest emotion. And do, you, do you think that that fear, I, I re, remember thinking, and I've, I've often used a phrase, I trusted in life and then it mm. burnt me. Do you, th- do you think that fear stems from we, we believe there's a natural order to life? You know, you, it, it's why we find it so hard to to emotionally process people dying young. But, you know, in mm. that moment where it's you're in the heat of it, in the, the absolute rawest intensity, it's like, hang on, I trusted that this was how life was going to play out. And suddenly it's like, boom, mm. no, nothing makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's borne out in how people react. I noticed there was a marked difference in terms of how people reacted when my dad died three years ago to what happened when Gemma died, because it's not the natural order what happened to her, but it is the natural order in terms of what happened to dad. He got to 76. Yeah, of course, we'd have loved to have had a few more years, but his health had been bad for quite some time. So it was no huge surprise, equally sad, but no great surprise that, that dad had gone. And, and people find that a more natural reference point in knowing what to say. You know, so the messages were very different to what I received in 2017 in that with dad, it was like people would, you know, tell you a story about him. I had letters from people I'd never heard from before who'd met dad many, many years ago. When that happens to Gemma, 
it goes against the natural order of things. And I think actually in the same way that it, it scared me in terms of how life was going to work, it scared the living daylights out of my friends and, and my wider kind of social networks in that they looked at this and thought, hang on, here's a 40-year-old woman who was fit and healthy only a few weeks ago because I saw her and she's getting diagnosed on a Tuesday and she's gone by the Friday. So the most common phrase I heard in terms of people reaching out to me were, there are no words because people do not know how to frame it. And it was the same for me. It was like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I know it does happen to some people. Actually happens to quite a lot of people as I've discovered as I've journeyed more down this road in terms of Ethan and the therapy that he's had. You know, loads of kids go through this sadly, but it goes totally against what you naturally expect in life. And it also reminds you that you take an awful lot for granted in life. You know, if the natural order happens, then you expect, you know, that relationship to be there for many years to come, for Ethan to have a mum who guide him through into his adult life and beyond. But then this comes in and that natural order gets snapped in half. Mm. Fraser, I was just going to ask, what, what for yourself, what's the, the biggest loss you've experienced in your life to date? I, I grew up with a, a big fear of this because I didn't lose anybody until my mid-20s. And I always remember just an overriding fear of when that day comes. And I was always terrified of it. Terrified, you know, my mum's asthmatic. and I'd seen her struggle to breathe on occasions. I lived with my nan and granddad growing up. So they were in the household 24-7. So I was always terrified. And I was a very nervous, anxious sort of child. And in the space of three years, we lost my nan and granddad and my cousin who was um, who had just turned 30 or just in her 30s to, to suicide all in the space of three years. And they were all very different. And my initial response, honestly, was to drink. I remember when my granddad was the first one to pass away. I remember getting drunk that night and just trying to block it out. But I, I wanted to put this to you as well, Simon. I... I've had some really good conversations with my mum about this, even on the train yesterday. She's looking after me a lot of the minute. When my granddad passed away, I found it, I, I couldn't be around anyone that spoke about him. So if he, if they started talking about an old story or something that he used to like, I'd change the subject immediately because I felt really uncomfortable mm. and I, I, I felt an energy in the room. But my mum's way of dealing with it, and it's her parents who, who had passed away, was to just continue to just keep talking about them, keep talking about them. And that was like her therapy. And we spoke about this yesterday and she said that she feels that's been one of the biggest things for her is just keep talking about them. You know, we had a, I've got a young nephew that I'm very conscious of because he was six, seven, eight years old when this all happened. I didn't lose anyone until my mid-20s, but he was losing people that were living in his house as a seven and eight-year-old. So it was a very different experience for him. So I wanted to be there for him. But how did you find initially and now continuing to talk about about Gemma, um, about other people talking about her? Did you try and shut it down or have you always been pretty, pretty open and and uh, wanting to, to keep talking about her? Well, I think as, as Luke will tell you, because he journeyed with me through those first few years, I was probably a little bit too open and honest at times, particularly on social media. I was kind of venting my spleen. But I don't know. I, don't, I think it's probably too grand to say this was a natural instinct. But I just had this hunch that bottling this up, bottling loss up, bottling grief up would be a really bad thing to do. So I was very expressive with my emotions and with how I felt. I didn't bottle it up. I didn't try and sort of suppress it and, and leave it for another day because that that's the thing as you'll both know about about loss is that at some point all those emotions that it will trigger inside of inside of you and they are varied and they're very powerful they're very up and down they, they have to be expressed at some point and I remember being told a story by someone that Luke knows well and I won't mention his name but he was one of my bosses at Sky for a number of years I remember him coming to see me for lunch quite early on in 2018, so a few weeks later. And I just felt from his messages, a little bit like when Luke reached out to me, I just thought Luke seems to understand this. I didn't know the story at this point about the loss of Luke's girlfriend, but then it made sense. I thought he, he gets this. And my old boss's messages, I just thought, 
he seems to get this, but I don't know why. And then we had lunch together and he told me that when he was five, he lost his mum to cancer. His brother was seven. And a little bit like what you're saying here, Fraser, his dad very much suppressed grief. So his mum was never really spoken of again in the household once the funeral had come and gone. Whereas his grandma, his late mother's mum, was like your mum, just wanted to speak about it the whole time. And I think when I sat there and listened to him, in many ways, it expressed why he'd become the character that he had become, which was in many ways, quite a schizophrenic character. One minute, your best mate. The next minute, he's just a nightmare. And I can never understand this fluctuation in who he was as a man. But when he told me this story and how his dad kind of suppressed their ability to express grief before, this begins to make sense. I'm no psychologist, guys, but I thought, I think this explains some of it. And I just felt I had to express it. It made me a very difficult person to be around because grief is messy. It's really, really, really messy. And that's why it's very hard for people to stand with you because they don't know what they're going to get on any given day. For for lots of my friends, one minute I could be okay, the next minute I'd be just a, a torrent of anger because of the injustice of what had happened and the situation that I had now been put in alongside Ethan. The next minute I'd be on the floor in tears. The next minute I'd be laughing. It just all these emotions, but I just felt... It had to be expressed because it's the, the the analogy I've used many, many times. It's not my own. It's not an original one, but I think it's the best. Is that, you know, when this happens, as it fires off all those multitude of emotions inside you, you're like a, a bottle of fizzy drink and the pressure builds inside you. And, and for as long as you keep suppressing all those emotions and not letting them out, that pressure inside the bottle builds. And eventually at some point, and it could be years later down the line, I've heard so many stories of people who said, I didn't really grieve for the loss of my mother until five, six years later. And when I did, it was messy. And you'd be thinking, well, it shouldn't be that messy five years later. But of course it's going to be because it was never let out before that. But I felt the better way to do it, rather than it just being this explosion months, maybe years down the line, was to try and sort of ease the top off gently. And through expressing myself, sometimes a little bit more openly than perhaps I should have done, you're kind of letting all those bubbles of emotion, all that pressure that's building inside the bottle out. And I think personally for me, in terms of my story over the last nearly six years now, is that has enabled me to heal from what's happened. It's enabled me to be restored. There's absolutely no way if you'd asked myself or Luke six years ago and someone said, in six years time, you'll be doing Soccer Saturday. I'd have just laughed and gone, there's no way that's ever going to happen because I couldn't imagine myself being able to stand on two feet again, let alone take a show on like that. But by processing grief, by allowing it to be expressed, you then begin the process of healing and restoration. Mm. Do you know, I, I relate to all of that so much and I obviously this podcast is is talking about men's issues or men's things that men don't talk about so well or things that are really relevant for us and I and I think the overriding one and I obviously the, you're talking about the the uh, person we both know uh, who's at Sky for men it, I think there's that anger thing it's mm. ang- you're angry not, not necessarily at one particular thing you're just angry and Mm. that has to be expressed otherwise it just sits there and it just grows and it builds and it becomes more intense and then like you say that bottle top is going to go is going to burst at some point you you said a a minute ago maybe i shouldn't i should have not expressed myself like that i don't think there is a should have or i think it's i i remember how expressive you were and I remember going through those those sort of waves of emotion, but knowing that they were really important for you because mm. it's almost the, the, the analogy I can give, which is not ideal, is it's like you have an argument with somebody and in that moment you think, oh, I'm absolutely right here, absolutely right. And then you go to bed that night, you wake up the next morning, you go, oh, I wasn't <laughs> so good there. And it's because you've it's come out and then you have time to go and process it and work it out. And I, and I think... It's the same thing. It's that kind of that comes out. I just wanted to ask you, Simon, when that was all happening to you, did you find it easier to talk to men or women? Did it make no difference? Did you find that, you know, men maybe wanted to switch it back to easier subjects to talk about football, you know, whatever it was? What was your experience of that? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too sweepingly generalistic in what I say, but I think I think women tended to be a little bit more willing to listen. I, I think one of the the things my friends had to learn fairly quickly, and for some it took them a lot longer than others, and I think this was particularly amongst my men friends. And this comes back to what you were saying, Luke. I think some of the anger that comes out of an event like this is that that masculine need to fix things. I, I want to fix what's happening here to Gemma, but I can't. And even the best surgeons in the land cannot, cannot stop the chain of events on that Friday nearly six years ago that led to her going. They can't. And, and as a man, you, you're standing by and going, I'm, I'm helpless. I should be doing something. I need to be doing something. The reality is you can't. And that took a while to let go of that anger that I, there was nothing that I could have done. And now I'm, I'm totally at peace with it. There's nothing I, I could do. And it was the same when, you know, Darina had Talitha, our daughter, nearly a year ago. And she arrived very, very early, eight weeks premature, because Doreen fell very ill very quickly with preeclampsia. And there was that same feeling of kind of helplessness. Like, But I'd learned in so much as that I, being here, being present, being alongside is what she needs right now, because it's the experts who need to do what they're doing. But I think amongst my male friends, there was that, we need to fix this. We need to fix Simon. So I'd, I'd have friends who would constantly trying to get me out to go swimming in the local swimming pool or get me out on a run or get me working out. Now, listen, I know you guys know this much better than I do. I know how powerful exercise is. But at that point, I just, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I had no energy. I had just about enough energy to get through the day. I don't want to be going for a run or a swim. That could come later. But there was that need to fix things. Mm-hmm. So I found ostensibly amongst my male friends, they want to fix you. But of course, there's an unfixable huge problem at the centre of this, which is the only thing that can currently fix the way Simon is and the way he feels and the way Ethan feels is to bring back the person who's gone. But it's impossible. So there's this unfixable thing at the heart of what he's going through. And I felt amongst my male friends, they couldn't really get their head around that. Of course, they know it's true, but they want to fix you. I felt amongst sort of my female friends, there's that more willingness to listen. There were some guys who would listen and some were very good. You know, sorry to keep pouring praise on you, Luke, but you understood. So therefore you listened. You understood. So therefore you didn't judge. And I found that very difficult. People who would judge you as to what what you're doing and how you should be doing things and yet came from a place of total lack of understanding what it's like to feel what I was feeling at that point. But I, I felt... I felt the problem with a lot of the guys was is that we don't want to dwell on this too long. We want the old Simon back. That's actually going to take time. And it did take time. But I'd say actually the version they've got now is a better version than the one six years ago. But at that point, they can't quite understand why this can't kind of happen now. But of course, it can't. That's such an incredible point. And I've been guilty of that myself. I know trying trying to fix things as well. Just talking about being a man and while we're on the subject of how men reacted to you being a man and being Mm. a father did you although you were expressive about how you how you talked about your emotions did you still feel this need to act very strong and be you know be a man and and you know act as if you had it all together at times or did you allow yourself to be completely you know vulnerable around around whoever it was I think the latter. I think there would have been times where you you will try because we do it in life all the time. You put on masks, the mask of confidence, the mask of everything being okay. But by and large, I, I didn't have the energy to put that mask on. And I think coming back to what I said earlier, that's I think why people found me quite difficult to be around because I was just very out there with how I was feeling. I remember one morning at Ethan's school. You know that was one of the big changes. Listen, I did do drop offs every now and again, but suddenly you are at the school gate twice a day. And I found the hubbub of the playground at Ethan's primary school quite difficult to deal with at times because you can hear all around you conversations that compared to where you're at right now just sound horribly, wonderfully irrelevant. And sometimes it would wind me up. Other days I could kind of just check out or find a couple of people within the playground that I, I felt comfortable with. But but some days I just couldn't take it. And I remember one morning just booting the school railings in anger and kind of could see some of the sort of parents backing off. But I just, I, I had so little energy, Fraser, emotionally, physically. I mean, my sleep was 
appalling for months on end. Months on end, I was waking. I could get to sleep, just couldn't stay asleep. So I'd be waking up. A bad night was around about half two. Uh, a lie-in was half four. And I'd always get up and do things. I actually wrote a lot during that that time. And that's where the kind of the idea for the book came from. But I just had so little energy anyway. I think adrenaline gets you through the first weeks because the shock of what's happened just lean, leaves adrenaline coursing through your veins for, for many weeks on end. Just didn't have the energy to put on a front. Mm-hmm. Just because it is actually, it takes energy to put on fronts. You know, if you're going to a situation you feel socially awkward in, it's going to take, you know, unless you rely on something like drink, which I know us three don't rely on anymore, but you're going to have to draw something up from inside you to get through it. Uh, and I just didn't have the energy. So people saw me at my very worst. Sometimes I was okay, but it, it was very much out there. And I think. One of the things I've been talking about a lot in the last few years when I have spoken at various events, particularly on mental health and particularly around men, is changing the whole perception of what vulnerability is. You know, you guys know from being professional sportsmen, you know, being vulnerable isn't 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 an easy thing to be. And it's it, we're seeing it a little bit more, but it's still a very difficult thing for men to open up about things they're struggling with. But when they do, my goodness me, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Richarlison for Tottenham very recently opening up about the, the psychological struggles he's been having with the expectations upon his shoulders at Tottenham because he doesn't appear to be able to do for Tottenham what he does for Brazil, I thought was really powerful. And actually, a lot of footballers will be able to identify with that, the mental battles they have when they're stuck on the bench for weeks on end and can't get a sniff of first team action. And I've been trying to help people, and I'm not the only one doing this, of course I'm not, of trying to just flip on its head how we see male vulnerability. It's not a weakness. It's actually really, really powerful when you as a man are able to open up and say, right now, guys, I'm struggling. I'm either struggling with a loss or I'm struggling with my identity at the moment. I'm struggling with the breakdown of a relationship. I'm struggling because at the moment I just cannot find work. And I felt like I was the one bringing the money in, but now I can't bring it in. It's powerful when men are able to say, I'm struggling and open up a conversation. The worst thing you can do, coming back to what we've been talking about throughout this, is batten down the hatches, screw that bottle top on and just keep it all down here somewhere. Because ultimately what you end up being is the very worst version of yourself and being open and honest and vulnerable with other guys with your friends, with your family is powerful and it will lead ultimately, I believe, to a better version of yourself. Love that. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. What So 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 powerfully put. I'd, I'd add to that, the Arsenal goalkeeper, Aaron Ramsdale, when he came, yeah. came out. And, and Ramsdale appears a really strong character, doesn't he? As a lot of goalkeepers do. And, and I, exactly the same. It didn't come across as weakness. It came across as power, which I thought mm. was wonderful. Simon, so, I want to, I want to ask you this, this question because this was a big challenge for me. And if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever actually said this openly, and I feel comfortable asking you, was there a point where you thought, I want to move past this, but I I don't feel great about that. I feel guilty about that. I don't know if I'm I'm on show. I don't even know what moving past this means, but mm. I don't want this to be the rest of my life. I I that crippled me. That mm. crippled me of that being felt like I was on show, like you you were, everyone watching you. But for me, there was a moment in time where I was like, I, I want to get past this, but am I allowed to? Mm. Uh, is it okay to, to? You know, I don't know if I'm even expressing this correctly, but does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And in the situation that, you had with what happened with your girlfriend and the situation that I had with what happened to Gemma is there was no time for any conversations about what life would look like going forward. So no conversations about meeting someone again, you know, that I know that the people do have when they are in the situation where they're given, they're given a time frame in which their life expectancy is going to last. So they're able to have those conversations. It all happened too quickly. We never got round to talking about what would happen if, because you would only just been diagnosed and the treatment was only just beginning and then gone. So you don't have that reference point and going, but we talked about this and this is what she said in terms of her hopes for Ethan going forward or what she want for my life going forward. So th- there wasn't any of that, but there's definitely a tension. I remember vividly the moment in which I thought, this can't be it. 
Mm. I was 44 at the time. And I thought this can't be it, which was stood by a tree that we planted in her memory in the house where we lived in Reading outside the garden in some communal land. And we put some of her ashes there and we had this huge party in the May of 2018 that would have been her 41st birthday. And I remember the Sunday afterwards just sort of reflecting on the day's events before. And it was a lovely warm May evening and it's right by the River Thames where we were living at the time. And I felt this kind of warmth of the sun on my back and I felt good about what had happened the day before. It had gone better than I could ever have dreamt of. It was a lot bigger than I ever dreamt of. It was only supposed to be for 20 people. We ended up at about 250. Um, but hey, Even I was there. It, yeah, it was, it, was, it was such a good day. And in many ways, a better day than the funeral because that was just an emotional blur. But I remember on that Sunday evening, just sort of standing there reflecting on that day before and then also reflecting on what life might look like going forward. And I just had this phrase that had been buzzing around in my head for weeks on end, which had come out of a book, which I still haven't read. I know it's a brilliant book, but I just haven't read it. And probably I may do it at some stage. I don't know. It's called Option B, which is all about loss. And I didn't like this idea that everything going forward was now going to be a second rate version of what had come before. I thought, I'm 45. I've got quite a number of years left, hopefully. Is this it? Do I want a second rate life for Ethan? He's only eight years of age. He's got a lot of living, God willing, ahead of him. Do I want that for him? And I remember on that day just thinking, no, I don't. I I don't believe that that's what she would have wanted. I don't believe that's right for Ethan. And I definitely don't believe it's right for me. And at that point, it felt real. It's not that everything became simple after that because it didn't. There was a lot of grieving still to go and a lot of putting life back together again to come over the next few years. But I felt this real sense that that I need to chase life down again, that actually this isn't what she'd have wanted to, to now live in the shadow lands of everything that had come before. But there is also that tension that you mentioned, Luke, which is in order to do that, am I, am I just forgetting what's come before? Am I just moving on and pretending that that period of life never happened? And of course, that's impossible unless you erase your memory banks. But I do remember, you know, as as Darina came into my life and and our relationship developed and and we fell in love. And then later down the line, we got engaged and then got married a couple of years ago. And now I've had Tanitha. It's been such an amazing source of joy and such a key part of the restoration of my life and, and Ethan's life. And life now is is very different to what came before, but it's it's beautiful and I love it. But there is that tension because some people look on and go, it's that tension between they want you to be happy again. They really do. Like coming back to what I said earlier, they want the old version back. There was a time when my sister Becky never thought she'd see her brother smile or laugh again. And she remembers saying that to Darina in the early times she met him. I don't, I don't, don't know if they're ever going to get our brother back, but you've brought something into his life that looks like we're going to get something back of him. But people kind of, they want the old you back, but sometimes it's a little bit on their terms in that they won't quite understand that you embracing life again doesn't equal forgetting. It doesn't equal erasing what came before. But there is, there is, I think, initially definitely a tension. But I think a lot of it, Luke, for me, was about what other people were saying and how they were reacting. Because... You're never going to forget what's come before. And just because I don't express that, I don't put a post up every anniversary of, of when she died or on a birthday. Some people probably look in and think, oh, he's moved on. He's forgotten everything. Well, no, I haven't forgotten. That's That was part of my life. Our life comes in chapters. And now I'm in a very different chapter to the one I was in before. But it's still part of the same story, the story of my life. It's It's now just a different chapter. And that doesn't equal forgetting. That doesn't equal just moving on and pretending that didn't happen. I mean, if nothing else, I've got a boy who was born by Gemma. So, you know, it's threaded into life. But there's definitely a tension. But I think for me personally, I felt that came from other people and less from me. Mm-hmm. Just with you mentioning Ethan, I just want to move on to that because I I can't express it strongly enough the role I don't know it sounds daft when you're his father but the role you played with Ethan 
during that time and always, but particularly during that time was, was I held it in, in wonder and where I've listened to some of the things you've put on social media with Ethan. And, and I think it's, it's such a credit to you that your son going through that and go, continuing to go through it to some extent and every anniversary and, and just it being part of his life, I think it's absolutely a huge show of what a fantastic father you are. But do you think, do you think it changed you as a dad? And now obviously you have Talitha with, with Darina. Do you think, do you think it fundamentally shifted how you viewed being a dad or it was more of the same? How was it for you? Well, it, I mean, it fundamentally shifted my role because for a period I was uh, solo parenting. There wasn't anyone else to, obviously there was friends and family to fall back on, but by and large the day-to-day life of getting him up, getting him ready for school, getting him to school, getting him back from school, trying to remember what was happening on any given day. It was all, always a source of real pride. There was one particular mum in the school who clearly didn't trust the fact that I could hold my shit together and remember <laughs> stuff would come up to me and said, I hope you've remembered that today is... I'd go, no, I have. Well, here it is. Thank you. I found that. I mean, I found that a massive challenge. That was a big shift, just, just from a practical point of view. I think how it fundamentally changed me as a dad, but actually changed me as a person is that, this was a very tough lesson in never taking anything for granted in life. The reason why we take things for granted in life is because we we feel they're always going to be there. But it's when they suddenly disappear that we realise actually, yeah, I did take that for granted. I, it's been something that I take into my career now. I just don't take what I'm doing now with Sky and, and Soccer Saturday for granted. Who knows what next year might bring? In terms of my personal life or terms of the broadcasting industry, I, I just appreciate every Saturday I get to go to work and, and do that job because I know what it's like to lose something. I know what it's like to lose a career. You know, Luke, you were part of the, the process as we as we talked it through in early 2018. Would I go back to Sky? Could I go back to Sky? I was a beneficiary of, of having a life insurance policy in place for both of us that gave me the financial ability to make that decision. But But losing your career... You know, that was something I'd taken for granted, even in the world of broadcasting, where things can change so quickly and now do ever more so quickly. I'd taken that for granted. If you think it's always going to be there or at least going to be there for the next few years, suddenly that's gone. Yes, it was my decision and the right decision at the time, but that's gone. And so I think when it comes to fatherhood now is is you appreciate what you have more than ever. It's not to say that fatherhood still isn't challenging and we've now got a teenager in the house. We are, myself and Darina, straddling the two ends of the parenting <laughs> spectrum. We've got a teenager <laughs> and he's changing. You know, he's he's different. Yeah. You know, he's not suddenly become a nightmare, but he's different. He's becoming a man and he's not very chatty sometimes and we both struggle with that. And then at the other end, we've got a soon-to-be one-year-old who is an absolute delight full on, determined, which they often say about premature babies. But I I think what it does is it refines your love for life, but in particular, it refines your love for people because Mm. this was a very stark, dramatic reminder that those people that are in your life, that are entwined in your life, won't always be there. And sadly, tragically, can suddenly suddenly not be there. And so as a father, you, you just... I think I love him and I love Talitha in a way that perhaps six years ago, I I mean, I loved him loads then, perhaps didn't love him at the level I love him now. I I love hearing you talk, Simon, about your journey. You're so eloquent with it. But obviously... That the where you are today, you met mm. Darina, fell in love, you've the most beautiful relationship, marriage, and you have a new baby daughter. Your career, it, it's not to say it's back on track. You, you've taken on one of the, without trying to terrify you anymore, <laughs> one of the most iconic football shows um, going around. And that journey that you describe, you know, you're from the depths of fear of everything mm. to where you are today. That's some journey. Mm. And I really hope for the, for instance, the guy that messaged us asking us to talk about loss, that that represents some, 
some real hope for for him to go mm. okay that that's the journey that Simon's been on but for for that guy that messaged and and generally what would be your biggest bit of advice if someone was going through in your case it was the, the loss of your wife but loss generally as a man what would be your biggest bit of advice my biggest piece of advice well there's one one bit of subsidiary advice i'd, I'd stick into this because we haven't spoken about this yet and sorry if you were going to come on to this but but one thing i would say and and luke will know about this all too well but more people do now because i've i've spoken about it is don't self-medicate. You know, what I did was I couldn't sit in the pain of what had happened any longer. And so I think it was a few days after her funeral in that December of 2017, having not really drunk for around about four months, I, I got stuck in to drinking and it became a massive problem over the next few years. Thankfully, now I'm 19, 20 months without a drink and I'll never drink again. There's the tattoo with the, with, with the date on. Yes, I love it. The 4th of January, 2022. But playing into the question you've asked, and this is a a really hard thing to hear, if that guy who messaged you is listening, if other people are listening who, who are maybe about to go through this or are going through it, is in order to find a way through, in order for healing to begin, and it, it can be a really slow process, really slow and in order for your life to be restored again to something different it will inevitably of course be different you have to at some point sit in the pain of what's happened and all too often particularly us guys we we don't really want to do that we don't really want to feel what the pain of acute loneliness that loss will visit upon you and I couldn't do that and so those nights when I was on my own for, for weeks on end, I couldn't sit in that pain. And so I would drink and it would take you away from that pain for two, maybe three hours. But then as you guys will know, it then descends you into a very dark and dangerous place. It's the same pattern every time. It's it's momentary relief, but then takes you to a far more dangerous place than you were in before you drank. So at some point you you, you have to take the pain head on. You can save it for another day. You can suspend it for another month. But at some point, you have to sit in the true gravity of what's happened. And it's a really, really tough place to sit. You know, you guys know this as, as, as two guys who played sport at the very highest level. In order to do that, you're going to have to go through pain. If you're not prepared to go through the pain of training, if you're not prepared to go through the pain of preseason, you're not going to perform. You're not going to be the player that you want to be. And if you want to be restored, if you want to find life again, at some point, you're going to have to sit in the pain of what's happened. And it's a hard place to be. But I would encourage anyone listening is do not self-medicate. Do not try and numb the pain and save it for another day. Listen, if you if you have those moments when you do drink, I understand it happens. But at some point, you've got to confront the pain and you've got to sit in it because once you begin to feel it, then you can begin to process it. Once you begin to process it, then you can begin to be restored from it. So that that's one thing I'd say. The biggest thing I'd say is, coming back to what we said earlier, find a group of people and an environment in which you can express how you feel. Do not be the person I spoke about earlier whose dad suppressed their grief and sat upon it and it affected the men that they have become in later life because it will cause problems in your workplace. It will cause problems in relationships. It has to be expressed. So if you're a guy listening to this now and you think, well, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable expressing how I feel, find an environment, whether it is with maybe a counsellor, I don't know, or a friend that you trust, but someone you can just be brutally honest about how you're really feeling. Because as we said earlier, wearing masks in life is utterly exhausting. It is going to be exhausting for you to try and go through these next few weeks and months if you've just gone through loss and try and pretend everything's okay. Because inside, everything is about as un-okay as it's possible to be. So express it. Talk about it. If writing it down helps you, write it down. If expressing your thoughts on social media help you, express those thoughts. Because actually, the more people do this, and in particular, the more that guys do this, but actually for loss as a whole in our nation, the more people express, and this is changing. You know, 
I think it's um, what's his first name? E. Grant, the actor. Um, Richard E. Grant. Richard. Richard. Or, yeah. Yes. He, he's been through loss recently and he's been very honest and open about that process. I think that's brilliant. You know, there will be the knockers who'll say, oh, you, you know, should keep this to yourself. Why are you letting the world know? And you're just inviting sympathy. No, actually, these conversations are really helpful. They're really important because the more we do it, the more we normalize it. Death is never going to be easy. It's never, ever going to be easy. But it's something we're all going to go through at some point. So the more we open the conversation, the more as men we're able to express how we're truly feeling, not only helps us as a country and as a society, but ultimately it's going to help you. Because I, I cannot even begin to fathom what the last few years would have looked like if I hadn't been able to express that. And actually coming back to the voice notes, I'm not going to apologise this time, Luke, but no. I can't remember why, but some thought came into my mind the other week about something that, that we had to deal with in those early months. And I found the voice note message when I told you about this occurrence that happened with these awful emails I'd received from someone at Ethan's school. And I listened to the voice note that I'd sent you. And I thought, I don't even recognise that guy. But that's, of course, me. And it was actually, a, it was a, not an easy moment because I thought, crikey, that was a really, really difficult moment, horrible moment to deal with, but actually a reminder of, of how much life has changed, actually how much healing and restoration has happened in my life. And I think if I hadn't been able to express myself in the way that I did and open up conversations with others, say, actually, no, this is, this is what it feels like. This is the reality of what I'm going through and what others go through. I don't think you'd be talking to the version of me today that you are. 100%. Fraser, I just want to bring you into this because um, talking about pain and Simon obviously made reference to us around physical pain, but I think, and, and no one has, has felt physical pain more than you in the last two, three weeks, Fraser, with your heart operation. But I think that's an interesting point for, for our background that I think you you and I probably are able to take quite extreme physical pain but we've both shown in our lives that we can't sit with emotional pain mm. and that's been part of our journey. When, when Simon said that, did it trigger it for you in the same way? Uh, absolutely everything that you've just, that you've just done. And I've, and I've also relayed it to different parts of my life as well, where I haven't been able to sit in that pain and alcohol being, being a big feature of that as well. But at my early sobriety, and obviously I've never had a drink since I listened to you two on a podcast before, and I genuinely believe that this podcast here, I'm getting goosebumps when I'm listening to you know to you talk here. I genuinely believe that if someone was signposted this, that it could just help so many people because you're just ticking so many boxes here of how someone will be feeling. But coming back to that point of where I really resonated with was in my early sobriety, I was very open about it and I, I wanted to post it. I wanted to tell people about it. And I had people saying to me, you know, why, why does he need, feel the need to post that? Or why does he feel the need to do this? But that was my way of having that, you know, become part of my identity. It was my way of part of, you know, of it sticking, of me being accountable to it. And it was just my way of, of coping with it. Other people have their way of coping with it, which might be completely different. And I've probably been guilty in the past and hopefully not too recently, but of judging people for that. Oh, look at this person. They're coming out talking about everything or look at that person. They're doing this. But everyone has their own individual way of dealing with things. And I think that's really important. And I know for a fact that I could not sit in that pain. I couldn't sit in that pain and it's a, it's nothing compared to this, but Mine came of, you know, I was grieving the loss of a career, a loss of an identity. It was mm. my whole career had stopped. It was taken away from me. Routine had gone. My place in the world had gone. Everything had gone. And I couldn't sit with that. So that's where that self-medication, I love the way you put that self-medication. That's where that came in. And it was like, right, if I drink this, I'll worry about it tomorrow. But then it comes back twice as big, four times as big, and it just doubles and doubles until you sit in that pain. And yeah, I just have to say that listening to to both of you talk about this, because it's such a difficult topic and it's such, it's just one of those topics, even I'm worried about asking certain questions and that's me being vulnerable and me being uncomfortable as a man mm -hmm. to go, 
I want to ask about Ethan, but should I ask that or should I? And it's you two creating that safe space and making me feel comfortable and making so many other people feel comfortable that we'll, you know, we'll all go through this, but people that may be going through this at the moment. And I've just given a whole random load of different answers there, but I'm getting so much from this and I feel like I, it, it's preparing me, but it's also allowing me to go back and, and deal with certain losses that I've had in my own life as well. Just going to say, I mean, the way I've always viewed it, and I'm going to use the word talk, but it, talk could be anything. It could be writing down. It could be social media. It, it could literally be talking. But I, I, I think, and I often think about this when I think of Simon's experience and being where, where I was within it. I think lots of talk gives lots of chances of healing. Mm. Some talk gives some chances of healing. Zero talk gives zero chance of healing. And mm. as men, we are really shit at understanding that. We are really shit at understanding that because in the last episode, we, we talked so much about, sorry, not the last one, the one before that, about men's status. And, and Simon talked about it so brilliantly. This thing we've created in our minds of like, we, we need to fix things. We need to fix things quickly because that's our role in the household and in life. We need to fix it now. And there's a mental trap that we get in there where we're like, I need to fix it. If I can't fix it, well, fuck it. I'm not going to talk about it. And we've got to overcome that as men. We've got to be open and honest and go back to that phrase. Lots of talk gives lots of chance of healing. Zero talk, zero chance. And I also think, coming back to what you were saying, Fraser, about you know people sharing stuff and should I share it? Is it too much? And, you know, whenever we're struggling in life, whether it be with loss or the loss of identity or we're struggling with addiction around something like alcohol, the great thing when people are able to share, and there's so many more platforms now in life than there were when we were growing up. There just wasn't social media. You know, there was no way of sharing this in the way that people do. The most powerful thing when you are struggling in life is to know you're not alone. Because all too often, the, the brain will kid us into thinking, it's only you who feel like this. It's only you who are dealing with this. Of course, we know when we reason with it, that of course, lots of other people are dealing with it, whether it be substance abuse or loss or whatever it might be. But we feel it's just us at that point. And I think as men, that then builds up a narrative of shame around what we're struggling with. So coming back to alcohol, a lot of the messages I've received, and I'm sure you've had them as well, particularly from guys as I've begun to open up more and more once I got past the year, was shame. Guys just feeling shame. Shame at the damage it's doing to them. Shame at the, ma- the damage it's doing to their marriages. Shame at the damage it's doing to them in their role as fathers. Shame at the damage it's doing to their careers. And because they feel trapped and they feel unable to talk about it, that shame magnifies inside them. And the damage just keeps on repeating and repeating and repeating. The more guys like you, Fraser, and like you, Luke, and others out there who are talking openly and honestly as guys about struggles, about battles they've had and how they've overcome them and the ways in which they stave off the cravings to go back to the booze or whatever it might be, the more we're saying to guys, actually, you're not alone on this. You're not the only one feeling this. You're not the only one battling this. We've battled it as well. You don't need to feel shame. You don't need to beat yourself up about this forevermore. There is a path to freedom. There is a path to being free from everything you're feeling right now. But if people feel alone, and I think this is particularly true of guys, then around them just builds this bubble of shame. And as you guys know, that's a really dangerous place to be because it then asks all kinds of questions about who you are, about your identity, about the fact you're just one massive failure. And as we see all too often with the high rate of male suicide in this country, it leads tragically Hmm. to women, to men being left without other halves, to children growing up without dads because that shame built to such a level because they were unable to express how they felt and vocalise how they were feeling that the only way out was that. And that's why conversations like this, you know, as as you talked about at the start, Fraser, when you heard myself and Luke on the podcast that I was doing, can be life changers. Hmm. It's, it's amazing. You'd have both had this as well of whether it's on Instagram or in a group setting or whatever, but when someone doesn't feel alone and when they do resonate with you, 
they will and and you'd have had this a lot recently simon with with um you know yourself talking about this especially on things like loose women or social media where you're getting a big audience and, and people can resonate but they know they aren't alone but they know there's a source of comfort with you that's been through it and you said that you know you found that with luke because he'd been through it they will mm. tell you more in one direct message or one voice note than they have told their friends that they've had for 25 30 years and it's because you've let your guard down and they feel safe to do that that it removes the element of shame mm. and where you said about luke about you know zero talking zero healing We've all done different types of group therapy, and I'm sure you've all seen the evidence of a guy that walks in for that maybe that first meeting or that first support group, whatever it might be, and maybe doesn't say a word and looks a little bit anxious, but then just listens to people and goes, oh, actually, these are, these are sounding pretty similar to, to myself. And then they open their mouth for that first time. And if you stay consistent and you carry on going to those meetings, the difference that you'll see in that man in six weeks' time, he wants to be the first one to share, to tell everyone about what's happened in his week or the issues that he's facing mm. because he's found a group that make him feel like he isn't alone. And that then enables him to, you know, to talk more and heal more. Exactly how you put it, Luke. I love the way that you put it. But we've all got these friends. And as blokes, and I've, I've, I look back and I've been so guilty of this, had friends for 20 years, but we've never even scratched the surface on some of these issues. And it's like, sometimes it takes reaching out to a complete stranger when actually we've got all of these friends, you know, in our circle group that really will want the best for us. But it's until they start, you know, talking about things like this and talking about things that are a little bit uncomfortable that they'll be stuck in those ways and they won't feel safe enough to. But one friend lets his guard down and and I've had it. I've had friends come to me with all manner of issues I had no idea about. But you being vulnerable, you letting your guard down just enables other people to as well. So if more and more men can do it, more and more men will feel less alone and, and able to, to open their mouths. So again, that will create so much more healing and just a much better generation you know, of men to come. And I think out of that, Fraser, is the important thing. And I think that's why people will message you and I found that particularly in 2018 because I was being very open about grief people would message you and people you don't know from Adam but incredibly honest and detailed accounts of what they've been through and it's been the same with drinking people opening up to me about very private areas of, of their life that you can bet your bottom dollar they're probably not opening up to others about and actually a, a guy that I haven't I haven't seen this guy in years, but I, I remember him from the village where I grew up in Norfolk in the 70s and early 80s. It's that long ago. Messaged me the other day saying he'd seen an interview I'd done on sobriety and just opened in this message his heart about something he's struggling with. And I think the important thing in all this and in terms of helping guys who are struggling and opening up conversations is I think the reason why people will send you those kind of messages is because they see in you someone who won't judge them. Mm. And that's what we fear so often in life is if I'm honest about this, if I'm honest about a, I don't know, a gambling addiction, if I'm, if I'm honest about something I'm, I'm thinking about way too much about at the moment, and it's affecting my mental health, or, that I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be seen as less of a bloke than I was before. And if I open up about this within the context of work, a question's going to be asked about, about me, you know, I had, I had a couple of messages a few weeks ago because I put a very honest post up about Soccer Saturday just ahead of the first six-hour show that I did. The first week we did was, it was no Premier League, so it was a much shorter show. So it was a, it was a nice, easy-ish entry into a very, very challenging show. The next week, it's the full six hours. And in, in my head over that week, it became massive. I don't, I don't know, how, how do I do this? How did he do it? I don't know how Jeff did it, but he did <laughs> magnificently for 25 years. And you're doing exactly the same show. And now it's all on you. And it became huge. And anxiety became massive. Some of the things I struggled with back in 2017 and then just a couple of years ago with, with Amazon ahead of a couple of games all came crashing back in. And so I put a post. I didn't go massively into detail. Probably wasn't as, as open as I may have been in the past, but I talked about it. Talked about that feeling of anxiety, that feeling of imposter syndrome. And one or two people did question, should you being 
be that open and honest. And I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's that's going to make the bosses at Sky question whether they put the right person in the seat. But actually, no, that, that's who I am. And actually, actually, I've had so many conversations with men and women in very high profile positions within the broadcasting industry who will all tell you the same thing. And I had messages from them after that post <laughs> saying, I've been doing this 20, 30 years. I struggle with that every single week. Every week I go to a game, I have that voice in my head saying, you're not good enough. Someone else should be doing it. You don't ask the right kind of questions. So many people struggle with it. And so I thought, actually, no, I'm, ha- I'm happy putting that out there because... If I'm going to be judged, okay, but that's who I am. And actually, that's what a lot of people struggle with. And so these conversations are so important for guys. It's having that that environment that you talked about, Fraser, that is free from judgment. Chaps, I'm going to have to bring it to an end, unfortunately. I just want to finish on this, really, because when Simon said it, it, it really... I resonated with with it so powerfully. My most profound feeling during some of the most darkest times of my life has been loneliness, has been Mm. a feeling of being alone, whether it was after the loss, whether it's been the troubles with alcohol, other other things, it's it's the feeling of loneliness. And whenever I talk about it, I always think uh, about my issues. I think because I don't want someone else to feel that loneliness, And I just hope that the guy who asked us to talk about loss today feels a little bit less alone today. And for other people going through different things, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you just feel a little bit less alone in the world when you've listened to this. And I think that's amazing. Simon. Thank you for being our first ever guest. I, I hope your career continues to move on from this height. It may be difficult, but we you know. Thank you. I really, we really appreciate it. Guys, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Right. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Men podcast. You can find us on all major social media platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram. Our TikTok is alive, so don't forget that. And we'll be promoting it on every episode on on all our own social media channels. So please come and find us. This episode particularly has been about someone being brave enough to message us to, to ask to talk about a particular subject. Please continue to do that. We want this to be as interactive as possible. If putting a comment in, in public feels too much, don't worry. Message us privately. We'll receive it and we'll definitely take it on board. Also, if you've liked what you've heard, then go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. And lastly, Fraser, you'll be excited to know this. We have 10 ratings already on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening (laughs) on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five star rating would help. It will help others to find us. So thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for listening and goodbye for now.